persecution and the power to prevail. And I do hope you appreciate my alliteration there. I don't do that often, but I purposely planned my public presentation this time. And so I hope you appreciate that. No, I, don't, I didn't get a lot of appreciation. <laughs> Someone said they did. All right. Well, anyway, this morning we will be focusing on persecution. And I think this topic is remarkably significant because there are a lot of challenges going on in our world today. And I think it is important that the church think biblically about persecution. So before we dive into our passages, passage, I want to give three principles that will help us to calibrate our thinking about persecution before we read our passage. The first is this. Persecution is certain. Persecution is certain. Sometimes we have this mistaken belief that persecution is really only for other parts of the world. In our passage today, we're going to read that, quote, we are destined for persecution. You say, well, destined by whom? Destined by God for persecution. Now, God is not the direct cause of persecution, just like he's not the direct cause of evil in the world, but he does allow persecution in the world, and he uses it for his purposes. We live in a fallen world, and if you live for Christ, you will experience persecution in some measure. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you believe that Bible verse? I think that's pretty categorical, isn't it? Our nation, of course, has a rich Christian heritage, and our founders brilliantly established religious liberty, which is why we do experience a lot less persecution than, say, other parts of the world. But even in America, you will experience persecution if you live for Christ. You will not experience persecution if you never identify yourself as a Christian. Right? But then you have to ask yourself, am I really a Christian if I never want to identify myself that way? So the first principle is that persecution is certain. Second is that there are different levels of persecution. There are different levels of persecution. A lot of times when we think of persecution, we, our mind goes to martyrdom, right? And we see that in Scripture, and we see that, unfortunately, far too often in our modern world. But we need to remember that there are a variety of forms of persecution depending on where you live, the circumstances, and so forth. In our passage today, the persecution that the church there was experiencing was not martyrdom, but it was persecution and very significant nonetheless. And I hope you might see why this might tie into where we sit at today. Third, persecution can either devastate or strengthen the church. Persecution can either devastate or strengthen the church. 
sometimes we have the, the notion that persecution is inherently a positive thing for the church. It is always used for good. Second century church uh, leader Tertullian famously said, quote, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. So God always, always uses persecution to grow the church, right? Well, friends, it's not simply the case. If persecution was always a good thing, why would Satan seek to use it? You know what it depends on? It depends on how the church responds. That is the key thing. Persecution is not inherently a good thing. It is how the church responds. Sometimes church, the persecution does strengthen the church. We see that in China, Korea, India, and Iran. But sometimes persecution devastates the church. For example, in the 1800s, there were hundreds of thousands of Christians in Japan. But it experienced intense persecution. So much so that pretty much all the Christians were either killed or they hid their faith. In the Middle East, it has been decimated by persecution. Let me give you an example. In 1900, in the nation of Turkey, Christians comprised 22% of the population. In 2010, they comprised 0.21% of the population. Do you see the difference? Persecution is difficult, and it is hard. We need to recognize that fact. Sometimes we just focus on the stories of the person who was delivered from prison after being persecuted. But what about the countless others where the person stays in prison for the rest of their life? Or they are quietly executed and you never hear a word about it. Or we, see, or we hear stories about persecutors who become Christians, but what about the many others who don't and who do light in persecuting Christians? By the way, we need to stand with persecuted Christians, whether we hear the great stories or not. We do them a disservice if somehow we have to depend upon them to give us great stories that get us fired up. We stand with them regardless of what happens. Friends, there is no guarantee that persecution strengthens the church. It all depends on how we respond. And yes, that includes us. Scripture teaches persecution already exists in the United States. Because we are part of a fallen world. And I'm going to say a few words at the end about why it is increasing and likely to increase. Friends, the time to prepare so that we are strengthened and not devastated is now. Not the future. It is now. But that's why we're here, right? So I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 as we continue our series on these letters that Paul wrote to the church he started about 50 A.D., located in modern-day Greece. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 
986. If you're still looking for it, down there at the bottom. Now, Paul has already mentioned persecution in relationship to this church. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 6, he said, you receive the word in much affliction. Chapter 2, verse 14, he said that uh, they had received affliction from their fellow countrymen, just like the the churches did in Judea. But now in chapter 3, Paul really kind of camps out on this topic of persecution and the Thessalonian church, and we have much to learn from it. So the first point of our passage is the peril of persecution. The peril of persecution. To begin, he writes in verses 1 and 2, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ. So when Paul began the church, remember just to recap here, there was persecution that came from a mob, and they accused Paul falsely of different things, and the authorities sided with them, and allowed a Christian named Jason to put up security for Paul and Silas who were in custody. Somehow, Timothy was not arrested. They were released for imprisonment, but they had to leave the city, Paul and Silas, and promise not to come back. So from there, Paul went to the next city, which was Berea, had a, had a, had a, a, a welcome audience there, but the same group of accusers came from Thessalonica, came to Berea, stirred up a mob, and Paul was chased out again. Paul had tried to come back to Thessalonica, but he says he was, quote, hindered by Satan in chapter 2, verse 18. So Paul was rightly and deeply concerned for this new church, right? He had only been there a couple of months. He had faced persecution. They were facing persecution Paul was concerned about them. How are they doing, right? He didn't have email. He didn't have text messages, right? He was wondering what's going on over there. And he was greatly concerned. And he said when he couldn't take it any longer, he sent Timothy to go to them, his beloved brother and co-worker. He said, well, why did he send them? In, verse, in the rest of verse 2 and 4, Paul says he sent Timothy, quote, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So Paul, he would often send representatives to other churches when he couldn't make it there himself. So he sent Timothy as his official representative Don't see Timothy as his errand boy, right? He's just kind of some little messenger. He came on behalf of Paul, and it showed that Paul cared for them, that he was not indifferent to them like the people were accusing Paul. Remember that they were making slanderous accusations about Paul? Paul said, no, look, I care for them. And he sent him, Timothy, to the Thessalonians to see how they were doing. And he wanted to know how they were doing with a little bit more depth than that, right? Not just how the Thessalonian Yankees were looking in spring training, right? There was a little more to his catching up with them. He wanted to know how were they doing in their faith, right? And he wanted to establish them in their faith for fear they might be moved by these afflictions. Interestingly, did you notice that Paul mentions that when he was still with them, 
he warned them that they were going to be destined for affliction, which I just said a little while ago. That means they were destined by God for affliction. They weren't doing anything wrong, right? Jesus was one who experienced affliction, right? The apostles experienced affliction as they saw with Paul. And now the church will suffer affliction. And by affliction, I don't think he means just in the sense of trials that we all have problems with our health and so forth and disappointments and finances and things like that. He's talking, I think, specifically about persecution. And I think reading between the lines, the Thessalonians were a little bit disappointed or surprised that they were going through this, right? Paul reminds them, I told you in advance that you would experience these things. Now, you might wonder, what were they going through? What kind of persecution were the Thessalonians experienced? Let me sketch out what may have been happening there. Said before that the Thessalonians, like pretty much everybody else in the Roman Empire, they were polytheists. They worshiped the, the pantheon of the Greek gods as well as the Egyptian gods. They also worshiped the Roman emperor as a divine being. Citizens were often expected to participate in these local religious practices and festivals. In fact, it was expected you to do so, so much they would give you money. The government would give you money to make sure that you participated in these religious festivals. There wasn't this kind of separation of church and state that we experienced. You were expected to participate. So now when Paul and his team arrived, they preached this monumentally different message than what these polytheists were hearing. In particular, it was unique to hear that there was a personal creator God, did you get that, who will have a relationship with you. It was also unique to hear that salvation was a matter of grace. God's grace that He gave on the cross of Christ. It wasn't a matter of human works. It wasn't a matter of us working to reach God. God did the work for us. We receive it by grace. So therefore, we can have an assurance of eternal life. So when a lot of these people heard this message... They said, this is good news. Forget all of this polytheistic stuff and running around with all these sacrifices and rituals and never knowing if you're going to go to heaven or not. This amazing message is for me. And so they turned from their idols and they followed Christ. And they also realized that Christianity demands exclusive allegiance. It's not like polytheism where you just say, okay, I like that God. And I like that God, and I like that God, and I like this God, and we'll put this God over here. Christianity says, no, there's one God. So the decision to follow Christ then came with significant cost for these Thessalonians. Religiously, people thought that Christians were betraying the gods of their families and their nations, right? They, again, they didn't have a one true God. And so there was the gods of your families and their nations. And so if you said, no, I don't worship those gods anymore, then you were betraying your family, right? You're betraying your people. 
Sometimes Christians were called atheists because they didn't have all of these different gods. They just had one God. Moreover, Athens was about 50 miles away. And not too far was Mount Olympus. That's where all the Greek gods resided. They hung out up there. And so next time you got some kind of disaster striking Thessalonica, they're going to be thinking those Greek gods are mad because you don't worship them anymore. We know those Greek gods, they were kind of wild and crazy and capricious as it was, so you didn't need a whole lot to tick them off. And so you're doing that. We also said there was a significant Jewish population there in Thessalonica. Some believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but we also saw that some were persecuting the Christians. And so these Thessalonians were experiencing pushback and persecution because of their belief in Christ. There's more. I said before how politically the city of Thessalonica was granted the status of a free, as a, as a, as a free self-governing city by the Roman Empire, so it maintained good relations with Rome for the sake of its own military and economic benefits. And so out of loyalty to Rome, the leaders of Thessalonica did not look on anyone who somehow would jeopardize that relationship. So here come Christians... And they no longer want to worship Caesar as a divine being. Word might get back to Rome about that. They weren't happy. And so there would be a lot of pressure on Christians. Okay, you can have Jesus, but still make sure you worship Caesar as God. So they faced a lot of consequences. One writer describes these difficulties this way. He says, quote, their alienation from unbelieving family members and friends, the curtailment of their opportunities to maintain, let alone to improve their current economic and social status, the restriction of their access to the city's political and social institutions, and their constant subjection to harassment and public insults. So while the church in Thessalonica, they weren't going... They weren't experiencing martyrdom. They still faced a lot of persecution. And so Paul, knowing all this stuff, was concerned. How are they doing? This is like, this church is less than six months old. So in verse 5, Paul writes, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Did you see how Paul recognizes the role of Satan in persecution? He was concerned that Paul's ministry could be in vain. If you remember back in chapter 2, that's what Paul said, that his ministry was not in vain, that it produced results, that it was successful. But here, Paul recognizes that there is that possibility that this persecution could undo all of his work there. Persecution, friends, can be devastating. So Paul calls Satan the tempter. Did you catch that? He calls him the tempter. Now, when we think of temptation, we often think of uh, choosing something 
kind of out of an illicit desire, lust or gluttony or something like that. And certainly that's true, but biblically speaking, temptation covers all sin. That's why Jesus tells us to pray every day, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In fact, that last phrase, deliver us from evil, is better translated, deliver us from the evil one, Satan. Because Satan tempts people in a variety of ways. And you know what his, his end goal always is? Is to drive someone to the point through a variety of means. And persecutions is one of those means to get someone to deny the faith. In Mark 4, Jesus told that parable of the sower. Remember, you remember that parable, very famous parable? Jesus talks about a man walking around. He's throwing seeds on the ground, different types of ground that the seed falls into represents different types of soil, right? Human hearts, and the seed is the gospel. And in one of those seeds, it's the rocky ground. And when it, 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 the seed lands there, it has this quick little jump up of life, but then it's destroyed by the sun. And Jesus says in verses 16 and 17, explaining that, These are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Did you catch that? So Satan can use persecution to cause the gospel to wither away in someone's heart. Friends, do you see the peril of persecution? So Paul's saying, what's going on? How are they holding up? Well, that leads to the second point. The power to prevail over persecution. The power to prevail over persecution. So after Paul sent Timothy to them, Timothy comes and he gives this report back to Paul, who was now at at the city of Corinth. So it says in verses 6 to 10, these words. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that you feel for, for all the joy we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly day and night for you that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Timothy informed Paul that the Thessalonians, Paul, they remember you and they love you still. They haven't bought into all these lies about you that were being spread about Paul. But most of all, they remained firm in their faith despite persecution. And Paul was elated by that. He says in verse 9 that there was really nothing he could do to express his thanksgiving to God because they had remained faithful. Friends, there is divine power to prevail over persecution. 
There is peril, but there is greater power to prevail over that persecution. I can't think of a greater test case than this church, less than six months old, not really grounded deeply in the faith, but yet they were faithful to the gospel and they withstood persecution, didn't they? This church stood firm. And did you notice how their faith strengthened Paul? Here's Paul, the great apostle. But you know what? Paul was kind of in a rough situation himself. Paul could look back and say, man, three cities before that, I got chased out of all three cities. The city I was at now in Athens, he preached to them. And there was some response, but there was also a lot of resistance as well. And to top it off, Paul was all by himself. He didn't like that. So Paul needed support, and their steadfastness strengthened him. You know, that's a real dynamic. Don't you believe that? That if you are going through persecution, if you have experienced some hardships, if somebody has done something or said something to you that you know, showed their opposition to the faith. You know what? And you can get kind of down and discouraged by that when people are indifferent to you and the only thing to do with Christianity. It's encouraging to read about the faith of others, right? Paul heard about their faith and was strengthened. So overall, these Thessalonians, they were doing well. Paul was incredibly thankful for them. But he also points out that they weren't perfect, were they? He said in verse 10, he wanted to visit and to supply what is lacking in their faith. Paul's original stay was only a month or two, right? And so he knew he had not kind of fully discipled them. And there were also some ways that they weren't obeying and applying what he had taught them. So in chapter 4, Paul's going to get real specific and deal with some areas that they needed to address in their own faith. Now before he does, though, Paul closes with a prayer on their behalf. He closes with a prayer on their behalf. He said how he had been praying for them night and day, right? He had been praying for them constantly, and he had been praying for them earnestly. That's convicting, isn't it? His intercessory heart for this church, praying night and day for them. We should emulate that. Now, in verses 11 to 13, he gives kind of a summation of what he prayed. And his prayer has two requests. The first request was that he focused on his return visit. He says in verse 11, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. So Paul prays that God would direct His way to them. Now to clarify, Paul's not praying, Lord, do you want me to go back there? He wanted to go back there. But he was hindered, wasn't he? Remember we said last time that word hindered was a military word that was used sometimes? When, when somebody was trying to block the pathway of an army that was approaching them, they would, they would put cuts, they would cut the road up so that army couldn't keep pursuing, right? Satan had hindered Paul. He cut the road up. Paul couldn't go back to them. The road had been blocked. So Paul says, I'm praying that God would just clear the way, get Satan out of the way, and make a way for me to get back there. 
So we don't know exactly what he means. I tend to think it was that legal ban that Paul had been placed under because Timothy wasn't part of that ban and he was able to travel back and forth. So Paul was hoping that somehow that would get cleared up and he would be on his way. By the way, don't you love how Paul just has that? He, he relies on the Lord to make it happen. Sometimes we can seek to force our way when it's not God's will, right? We look at that road and we see that road all chopped up. And we say, I don't care, I'm going to go ahead anyway. And then we wonder why we have a, a, a flat tire and we're blaming God because we weren't patient to wait on Him to clear the road, right? Paul was dying to go see them, but he knew it wasn't right yet. He was sensitive to the Holy Spirit, waited upon the Lord for Him to clear the way. Maybe something we can learn about that as well. The first request then focused on Paul's return visit. The second request focused on the Thessalonian church. He says in verses 12 to 13, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Paul prayed that they would abound in love for each other. Did he stop there? Did he say, okay, church, just make sure you guys really love each other, and that's it? What else did he pray for? They would love all people. Even those who were persecuting them. As Jesus said, love your enemies. Wow. Now you say, man, Paul, kind of rough on them, saying they weren't loving. No, remember Paul said back in chapter 1, he commended them, right? Remember he talked about how they, they were, um, their labor of love, which meant they had a love that produced good works, right? They were a loving church, but they had room to grow. Don't you love how Paul does that? He commends them, but then he also prays for them that they would continue to grow. We often just say, man, you got to be a more loving person. Paul says, I recognize fruit in your life, but I'm also praying that you'll grow in that. You see the difference? Big difference. And as they abound in love, it will result in God establishing their hearts blameless in holiness. We are to be pure and righteous in our beliefs and our characters. God desires that we would reflect Him. As we'll see in next week's message, this church was surrounded by all kinds of sinful temptations, particularly sexual immorality. Paul's going to zero on on that next week, just like our culture. Amazing how these things always relate, isn't it? Some things never change. But then finally, Paul mentions the return of Jesus. You know, he does that in every chapter. Every chapter at the end, almost kind of like an exclamation point. He talks about the return of Christ. And here he points out that he's praying for them to be pure when Christ returns on Judgment Day. He doesn't say that he wants them to be perfect because he knows they won't be perfect, but he prays that they'll be blameless, meaning that they'll seek after the Lord. And yes, they will fall short, but when they fall short, they will keep confessing those things and growing and growing in holiness until that day comes. What a chapter, right? That was a great chapter. I want to close, though, with a couple final words about persecution and our nation. And I hope you'll listen to this and listen to my heart about it. As I said, persecution 
is certain. You will experience persecution. Whether you lived in the United States in 1950 or whether you live today, persecution is a given if you live for Jesus Christ. You will always experience comments, pushback by friends, family member, jobs, so forth, and so on. But people often want to bring up, will persecution increase in this nation? I'm the first to say only God knows the future. So I am not some sort of authority. But I will say that there are many signs that point to greater persecution in the days ahead. Why is that? Well, the media and universities are the primary shapers of culture and what we think about. They are the primary shapers, and they often display, not always, not always, but often display an ignorance, an intolerance, and even a hostility toward Christianity. My words are not alarmist rhetoric. Your, ha- your head would have to be buried in the sand not to see that. It's been well borne out with different research and so forth. Moreover, the defining cultural issue has become the clash between sexual liberty and religious liberty. It has become the defining sort of cultural issue of our day. Progressive sexual liberty and religious liberty, where there are differences about that sexual, progressive sexual liberty and the fundamental rights of Christians and other faith groups to hold to those beliefs without persecution. There are increasing calls, increasing legislature to impose a progressive view of sexual, human sexuality on society, even at the expense of religious belief. And there are not a lot of overtures of compromise about how these things might be worked out. Rather, the choice is simple. Comply or face the consequences. There are those who have already lost their jobs. For example, Atlanta Fire Chief Kevin Cochran, long distinguished career, lost his job for writing a Bible study geared for men at his church. It was 162 pages. It had six pages that were devoted to discuss biblical sexuality. He lost his job. For others, they face legal ramifications such as fines or even jail time for refusing to offer their services that might violate their conscience. Bakers, florists, photographers have already experienced these things for a refusal not to service the customer in general, but about one specific area participating in a same-sex wedding ceremony where their consciences would be violated because of their well-established religious beliefs. Other situations require you to accept progressive norms that might violate your conscience, such as using a restroom or a changing area with someone of the opposite biological sex. Even in our public schools, this is increasingly being 
implemented. Another important matter will be the future of Christian schools that will face enormous pressure from the government to comply with the progressive standards or to lose their public financial assistance which might close some of them down permanently. And just kind of overall the cultural feel Advocates of progressive sexual morality increasingly are successful in portraying anyone who differs with them as being intolerant and a bigot. In 2017, the Family Research Council released a study that found a 76% increase in religious freedom violations and a 114% percent surge in documented hostility toward Christian views on marriage and sexuality since 2014. So friends, if we stand for biblical truth, even in a gracious, kind, loving way, which is what we are called to do, we will still experience persecution. Persecution in general, and with this particular issue in specific. Like the Thessalonians, and I hope you see the connection, right? The Thessalonians, they were not being martyred for these things, but they faced significant persecution for their beliefs. You and I may face significant persecution if trends continue. Persecution can devastate the church or it can strengthen the church. The question is, how will you respond? There is great peril in persecution, but there is greater power to prevail. Will you stand firm? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for these words we have heard this morning. Thank you for the sober reminder about the peril of persecution. We pray that we would not glamorize it as if it's an inherently good thing. As we minimize what our brothers and sisters sometimes experience in different places. We think, oh, that's great. The church will grow. Lord, help us to be faithful in standing with them, knowing that it is hard and difficult. Let us recognize the peril of persecution. But Lord, we also want to recognize the power to prevail. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And Lord, we confess that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. We pray that we would stand firm for you. That persecution that we face, whether on a more minor scale 
or whether trends continue to intensify in this nation, that we would be found faithful. We know that really the bottom line is how we respond. This Thessalonian church was an infant church, but yet they were faithful. Help us to be found faithful. We have all the resources we need by your word and by your spirit. So Lord, help us to be found faithful. And Lord, I also pray, as we spoke of earlier, that glorious gospel, that good news that Paul and his team shared with them that just sounded so good to those hearers. I pray for someone here today who maybe has never embraced Christ as their own personal Lord and Savior. That they would realize that maybe they have been chasing after the wrong thing that won't satisfy. Or trying to have enough good works to make you satisfied, Lord. That the good would outweigh the bad. Lord, may they realize that, Lord, you paid for it all on the cross. And that today they would receive your grace, become followers of Christ. Even if they might be destined for affliction. It is all worth it because of the great glory of knowing you. We thank you and we praise you for this word here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. And all God's people said, Amen.